When you think about scuba diving, you probably think of something among the lines of seeing a bunch of marine life and coral reefs. But what about diving way beneath that? Way beneath the surface in caves completely devoid of light, where it's so dark you can't even see your hand an inch away from your face. So far below the surface that marine life might not even exist. Cave diving is not for the faint of heart. It involves diving miles into underwater caves into areas that humans quite possibly have never been to. And these aren't your typical caves either. These are caves that can be so narrow that they need to be measured in inches rather than in feet. So narrow that the potential of dying from either running out of oxygen, getting stuck, or the cave collapsing are all very real possibilities. In fact, more people have died exploring underwater caves than climbing Mount Everest. I have with me today Jill Heinerth. Jill's career spans over three decades and has taken her around the world in search of remote areas completely untouched by humans, and often by any other living species for that matter. More people have been to outer space than to some of the regions that she's dived underwater. She is credited with being the first to dive both the deepest and longest caves known to exist. She's also the first to ever dive in the ice caves of Antarctica, reaching further into the underwater cave system than anyone else before her. So, Jill, thank you so much for coming on. Really oh, thanks for that. having me. It's great to be with you. Of course. And mm-hmm. I just finished reading your book, uh, Into the Planet. It's exceptionally well-written, um, and it outlines your entire journey from foregoing a successful graphic design firm in hopes of um, you know, aspiring to this cave diving career that you've accumulated. Uh, you talk about your house getting invaded. You talk about um, kind of the transformation uh, of going from like a pupil to a master and how you started exploring bigger and better, more remote caves uh, to ultimately find your purpose and your passion and to inspire others, um, particularly women who wish to make the most out of their career. So let's let's kind of start there. What would you say is the the biggest takeaway that you want people to have when they read your book? Oh, boy. I, I think that, that fear plays a really important role in our lives. And um, if we uh, don't address fear, uh, then it can govern our lives in very negative ways, too. So although, you know, I speak about fear mostly from what I've experienced in underwater caves, we're all fearful, right? I mean, this this world is a is a pretty scary place these days, but I, I believe that we have to step into that fear and experience it and allow it to, you know, guide us in ways that move us forward um, to make new discoveries and explorations. What would you say is like the allure? Like what what initially brought you into this sport, if you want to call it a sport, but it's so much more than that. But what what is the allure of it? Because for um, people who are claustrophobic, it's definitely not for them, sure. I imagine. Yeah. I mean, I was always a curious kid, um, and I was always an explorer as a result. Uh, but I was also that kid that built a fort inside the cupboard underneath the, you know, the kitchen counter. Or <laughs> like I, I did actually like kind of dark, cozy places to, you know, build my little forts and stuff. <laughs> so I don't have claustrophobia. <laughs> so I'm not like most people. Um, and, and if you feel claustrophobic, when you think about underwater caves, that's okay. That's natural. And that's probably smart. Uh, but caves are, you know, rather abstract. And, and the way I like to describe it is that, you know, wherever you live on the surface of the earth, you know, anything you do on the surface of the earth can soak into the ground and travel in between the grains of sand and silt and soak into the ground like a sponge. 
I just work in places where that sponge is just big enough for me to fit through and explore. And there's something about the fact that some of these places, like no human has ever been to ever. So when you're down there and you're seeing these these rock layers that are so old and so, you know, essentially prehistoric, it, it must be just this otherworldly experience. Like, do you ever have this sense of like going through time, like a time capsule mm. feeling or anything? Or Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I recognize that I have this rare privilege of going to places that nobody's ever been to and in all likelihood, nobody else will ever follow um, and bring back, you know, pictures and information. And so, yeah, that fills me with, with awe and, and wonder. I mean, I sort of, you know, pinch myself for, for these opportunities that, that I have, but I feel a sense of responsibility too to, to share these things. Um, because I think there's a lot going on inside the planet, a lot going on just beneath the surface that we need to pay attention to. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. And part of your background was in fine arts and graphic design. So mm -hmm. how did you end up parlaying all of your educational background and your career background into underwater mm -hmm. photography to, to share those moments that, again, like you said, you're probably the only person to ever witness that. So how did that transformation happen? Yeah. Um, you know, as I said, I was a real curious kid. So I, I was interested in a lot of different areas of study. I mean, always been interested in science and geography. And and um, and yet I'm an artist. And so um, when it came time to go to university and to think about what I should take at university, certainly you know, the forces around me, the family, family and society were pointing me in, in directions towards, you know, science and STEM, basically. Um, but I felt this drive to not be a specialist. And I, I wanted to document the world. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Visual Communications Design. But it didn't stop my interest in science and math and geography and everything else. And I, I kind of look at at this career today as a combination of all of those things. And yeah, sure, STEM studies are really important. And in many ways, you know, I am a citizen scientist today. So, um, but I think you need that dance of left brain and right brain, the creative with the scientific, because there are a lot of things that are really interesting to, to look at, explore and discover these days. But I think um, those discoveries just can't be held back. They can't even be held within the halls of academia. They need to be shared with the world. Like we need a whole legion of citizen scientists to communicate about what they're seeing. Um, because we know that when people see and really viscerally experience things, then they want to take action. And and that's what we need today is action and engagement from all of these, uh, you know, interest, interested, curious minded uh, citizen scientists. So the one thing that you mentioned that I, I kind of want to dig a little deeper on is like breaking that orthodoxy. So a lot mm -hmm. of people have these these traditional paths that they want to follow that people expect them to follow. And breaking out of that mold is not only is it important for the human spirit, but I think it's it's really where you can you can grow as an individual. You can push yourself to the limits. What were some of those experiences that forced you to kind of go out of your comfort zone and really break that mold of the traditional orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah, it can be really difficult to um, to to 
shift <laughs> and and experience change when you're kind of comfortable in the skin you're in or the comfort comfortable in the place you're in um but I like to feel like the challenge of problem solving and putting things together to um, make the impossible possible. And for me, like I, I knew, like I loved the creative process of graphic design and I loved what I was doing, but I didn't love working indoors. So that's actually what killed it for me. It's like I got to those non-negotiables of I cannot do that nine to five or, or it's more like, you know, nine to nine kind of kind of job like inside. Like I could apply that same energy to something that was outside. And so the only way I managed to do that was was to really literally jump into cold water. Like I sold the business. I sold everything I owned. I left my home, left my country and um move somewhere else and sort of force myself into like, okay, well, what are you going to do now? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Not succeeding was not an option. And, and so I've kind of done that at other points in my life. I mean, even, you know, when my first marriage didn't work out, it was a similar sort of situation where I went, okay, I, I can't fight about this. I can't argue about this. I just know this isn't the right path. And I literally um, sort of left with the, the travel trailer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and some people would call that homeless, but <laughs> but no, it was just for me. Yeah, yeah, I mean, for me, it was like a fresh, a fresh start, a fresh viewpoint that that forced me into some pretty creative spaces. Like, like not succeeding, that was not an option. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, yeah you, you learn more from your failures. I feel like, and um, <coughs> and it and yeah, it gives you a new perspective. I mean, even even to that point. Um, I mean, yeah. I think you would agree, Paul taught you a lot and got you and kind of expanded your worldview in the beginning. So you can, yeah. you can always take the best parts from all, all of your experiences. And I think what yeah. you were even touching about before about the left brain, right brain, and like connecting mm -hmm. all these ideas and not being mm -hmm. a specialist, but being more broad, yeah. like that really gives you a comprehensive view of, of, of any subject that you're trying to undertake. Yeah. I, I mean, there has to be a certain maturity about like life experiences and setbacks and, and relationships and everything else. I mean, I mean, it's no secret that, that although my marriage didn't work out with, with Paul, my first husband, um, we're still good friends and support each other and want the best for each other. Right. Like, I mean, relationships serve you at some point in your life. So even if you leave them later because they don't serve you well, there was still a reason why you fell in love and did great things together. And so you should respect that. And the same thing with like setbacks or what people might term as failures in business or or whatever else. It's like, okay, this happened. I can't change that. But the good, the bad, and the ugly that brought me to this point served me well in terms of a learning situation. It's like, am I just going to like, you know, give up and, and walk away from all of this? Maybe. Um, but maybe I can find the little roots and shoots um, that still want to grow and I can nurture those to move forward. Like, so I don't like the word failure. I like to think of it as discovery learning. I um yeah, I think it's all it's all progress. And and we have to be honest with ourselves about the fact that every experience that we've had in life, good, bad, and everything else, builds who we are today. And so um, you know, moving forward is just a sum of those experiences. Yeah, definitely. And and something that someone told actually a previous guest on the show said was failure is to not even try. Yeah. And so it's, it's not, there's a, there's a speech that I really like by Teddy Roosevelt. I've said this a million times on the podcast, so 
Mm-hmm. Sorry for all the listeners out there. But the credit belongs to the person who's actually in the arena, who's actually trying. Not the people in the stands, not the people on the sidelines, but the people who's actually trying. And if you're not even trying, then that's the failure, right? Yeah. And so I yeah. think it's all about just like taking that plunge. Yep. No pun intended. <laughs> and then just <laughs> trying to trying to just push yourself to the limit, you know? Absolutely. Like my favorite one is uh, Winston Churchill, who says that courage is simply moving from one failure to another without losing enthusiasm. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I love that. I never heard that one. That's, I like yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and one thing that I, I really respect about you in particular is it seems like you've always kind of had this chip on your shoulder where you just want to prove everyone wrong. And that has like really propelled your growth in in monumental ways. And I think for a sport that is a very male dominated Mm -hmm. sport, you've not only broke all these records, but you just smashed all these records. And you don't really want to be known as like the best female cave diver. It's like you are the best cave diver, period. And so I think that's really inspiring to a lot of women around the world who look to you and see like, wow, look, you know, look what this person's done. So what do you, I guess, what was your experience like in that kind of situation? And what do you hope to convey to other people who might be in a similar situation? It doesn't necessarily have to be gender related, but just people who who have always kind of been the underdogs, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I certainly experienced both sort of overt sexism as well as unintentional bias that exists in every aspect of society and every, you know, sport or, or avocation. Um, and in, in my youth, I guess that would have affected me more profoundly, like, especially in the early days of the internet, when you sort of believe that everything that someone said was true. (laughs) (laughs) And and so that used to hurt me and, and cause me anxiety. And, and so maybe with the wisdom of age, I, I, I recognize that um, um, those comments or acts aren't about me. You know, they're about about the person, the sexist or the racist or whatever else. It's not it's not about me. It's about their own insecurities. And so um, I truly believe in my heart of hearts that anyone is capable of anything they put their mind to with hard work and effort and and that those opportunities should be available to all, regardless of you know gender, gender, cultural background, or whatever else. Um, and so yeah, I guess I'm a you know a lot more comfortable when I you know hear things like that happen. Like it's like yeah, right, <laughs> or watch <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <laughs> but I do want to convey that to younger people uh, because I do know how how much that can hurt or hold you back, you know, don't let it. You've got only one life to live and you've only got yourself to be responsible for. So have integrity, move forward with authenticity and the rest of the stuff is just noise. Yeah. It's a lot of, I mean, it even goes back to what we were just saying. Like those people who, who aren't like, who are you, the cyber warrior to tell me like, (laughs) I'm the one who's going and risking my life to do this stuff. So like, you can go shove it, you know, like it's, it's a lot of <laughs> yeah. just, yeah, yeah. it's a lot of noise. It's yeah. a lot of ridiculous. If my activity noise. bothers you, just go on someone else's feed. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. um, there was a part of the book, there was a story I really enjoyed about when you were first doing the 3D map of the, um, mm. the Wakulla Spring in Florida. Yeah. And speaking of the internet trolls of the time, um, I guess a big reason why that, 
when you were when you were planning this route, you wanted to map the entire underwater cave system of that area, and it was going to show where there were freshwater aquifers and like how it affects different wildlife. There was a whole bunch of scientific um, usefulness of doing so, but you re- you faced a lot of resistance from I guess the regulatory bodies, and the reason was because of essentially just like jealousy from other from other mm-hmm. cave divers in the area for one reason or another, and they gave you forty eight hours to essentially map out a prototype for this agency and you just your team faced setback after setback after setback but ultimately you got the job done i really i really love that story so two questions one is not really a question but just yeah wa- maybe for for anyone who hasn't read the book just walk us through like that whole experience and that whole um situation because that's that was really the highlight of the book for me and oh, then also cool. Um, what, what would you say is like, you, you took away from like a leadership standpoint, because something I've noticed mm-hmm. about leaders in general is their resiliency and their ability to stay calm mm-hmm. under pressure. And that I think was really highlight. I mean, you have a lot of examples, mm-hmm. but that particular yeah. example was one that resonated with me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a really incredible experience. It was an all volunteer team, like self-funded you know? yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, getting some some funding from from outside entities but all you know we're going hat in hand for every dollar to make the make the technology and dr bill stone was has was developing this three-dimensional mapping device but you know this is back in like 1997 so (laughs) we were also very early in the rebreather game and so we were bringing together all of this stuff which in most people's eyes was just sort of fantasy space age technology and we were going to make the world's first accurate three-dimensional map of any uh, subterranean surface, dry or wet. So a pretty huge leap forward. And um, even like hydrologists at the state of Florida had their doubts that A, our technology would work, or B, that it even mattered. Because up until this point, cave maps drawn with string and compasses by hand were of no interest to <laughs> Uh, policymakers and scientists because they didn't think it was accurate enough and we wanted to prove them uh, prove it otherwise but but yeah we got this volunteer team together we had like you know a fire um that burnt up some of these like incredibly expensive batteries that we'd spent all our (laughs) money on and and um you know we had issues with uh lack of understanding of how the technology worked leading to mistakes on the team to the point where we were literally down to minutes to prove that this was even possible um and i think it was only possible because of the team. So we had open-minded, resilient people who just weren't going to take no for an answer or like nothing is impossible. We've got to do this. Um, And there was never, you know, fingers pointed like that battery burnt up because you screwed up or, or anything like that. It's just like, okay, what can we do? (laughs) I know there's glory to be had, but you've got to get in a car and drive for two hours and go get some more helium for us, you know? (laughs) And and everybody did. Everyone just dropped all of their expectations and it it no longer became about, well, who gets to drive the mapper for this historic event? It's more like, okay, you get the food, you get the gas, we'll mix it up, we'll have 10 minutes to spare. (laughs) You know, everybody get dressed, safety driver, divers on standby, don't cut corners. And so we had a dedication to the safety protocols. We were still willing to abort if we had to. Um, But everybody just did what they could. And the creative, you know, 
conglomeration of minds like pulled it off. And so my lesson is that you don't necessarily hire the best practitioner of a skill when you need to fill a position. You fill the position with someone who's got the other skills like open-mindedness, teamwork, um, uh, you know, if they're teachable, willing to learn, curious, willing to speak up if something's wrong. Like, it's a whole lot more about those soft skills and then also finding people that are going to be fun to hang out with <laughs> for a few <laughs> yeah, months. Yeah. Cause, yeah. Because, I, because I have been on projects where we've chosen poorly. We chose someone who was the best at whatever and then they ended up not being very good at human skills and they're miserable to be around they're not a good addition to the team and they actually drag things down so i would much rather have a young apprentice than a sage you know asshole <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> um, yeah yeah there's there's uh there's kind of the famous Shackleton uh, job posting where he's like, this is going to be miserable. There's going to be very little food or you're not going to have fun. And you're not going to get paid. <laughs> you're not going to get paid. Like, yeah. And then the people, but it just shows because like the people who came were the ones who were truly passionate about what yeah. he was doing. Yeah. And that was the same, that was the same thing I got from that story was like all the people mm-hmm. on board really, really were just passionate about the end result. It didn't. And like you yeah. said, they didn't care who did what. It was just, Someone who is capable of doing some task, do it and let's and that, be as efficient and that as possible. started like years later where we were like, how can we map a cave if the visibility is so bad we can't see it? You know, how can we how can we map a cave in more accuracy than the stringing compass? Like, how can we build a device that could do this even without a human being in the future? And all of that has come true. And it's all come true because of this team of people because of, you know, Bill Stone's tenacity and and a lot of volunteer hours. I mean, that mapper is now an artificially intelligent robot that's ready to go to Jupiter's moon Europa and and map the liquid ocean beneath the frozen surface. I mean, that's a cave diving robot going to space, you know, and 25, you know, more than 25 years ago when we just dreamt about tannic vision, (laughs) being able to see through the water. you know, who would have imagined? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's that cross collaboration that just mm-hmm. being able to be multifaceted and, yeah. um, great. Now, Antarctica mm-hmm. is another really fascinating. Um, I, I have this like weird fixation with Antarctica because to me, it's like the last wild west on earth where like mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's communally agreed that like no one's going to mess with it. Like it's there for research purposes. And so you did cave diving down there Mm -hmm. and I don't want to butcher it for the listeners. So maybe how did that come to be? What was it like? What were your experiences, both good and bad? Yeah. Yeah, It's interesting that I think that project has continued to have such, you know, relevance today as we, you know, look at global climate change. I mean, right now in the news, everybody's following the A23 iceberg and they're calling it the largest iceberg ever seen. And it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not. Because <laughs> yeah. back uh, uh, at the beginning of you know 2001, the largest iceberg in recorded history calved away from Antarctica. And that was the size of Jamaica, significantly larger <laughs> than A23. And um and so my colleagues and I proposed to go down there and be the first people to cave dive inside an iceberg. And 
we had just it was just a hypothesis at the time, but we looked at ice and said, well, ice is like limestone. It gets dissolved by water as water moves through, you know, that solid. And, and so surely if this thing is cracking away from Antarctica, cracks and crevices equals caves. And um, so we went on this wild guess um, and uh, and did indeed, you know, encounter that ice and go inside it and, and explore. But you know, when you're the first person, there's no handbook. <laughs> you know, when you're an explorer, you got to make a map for other people to follow. So that meant that every day we had to have that flexible team that was willing to look at what happened today and learn from new information to make um, a, a safe choice for tomorrow. And every single day was like that because of some of the risks that we face. Like, on our way home on that boat, we had dinner one night and we all decided to share a story about when we were the most scared <laughs> on the project. And and for, you know, Paul Heinerth and I, it was, you know, when we were inside the iceberg, like on one occasion, the, the, the entrance we'd gone through had calved and blocked the doorway. You know, there was another dive where we're actually trapped inside the ice trying to get out. Um, but for other people on the boat, like the captain says, Oh God, well, when we had the engine room fire, I thought, holy crap. And I thought, engine room fire? <laughs> when did that happen? Or, uh, you know, the first mate's like, well, you know, we did a roll in the boat, that I remember, um, that was greater than the limit of the inclinometer on the boat. So this little needle that goes one swing you know, left or right port or starboard to show how much the boat is rolling, like heaving on its side. And, uh, and we exceeded the maximum roll where we should have capsized. <laughs> so 60 foot seas, you know, uh, unbelievable stuff, but everybody had a different story about when they were most frightened. And what was amazing is that there were things that occurred that I had no awareness of when someone thought their life was in danger. So that actually shows a really good crew that an existential threat occurred, the problem was solved, and then it didn't matter anymore. So we didn't even talk about it because we had other things to deal with. Yeah, because I, I do believe that was probably the most dangerous thing I've ever done. But I'm, I'm, I'm so happy I did it because I think that at the time I was told that my, you know, discussions and conclusions about you know, climate change and sea level rise were were um, too political to discuss. <laughs> you know? uh, that they have a lot of value. I mean, we know now today that water, you know, moves through cracks and crevices in icebergs and glaciers, and that in some cases it's actually lubricating glaciers to move faster off of you know land and into the water, and that's where you get sea level rise from. So. So I think the whole hydrodynamics of, of understanding ice and water is, is critically important to seeing how quickly <laughs> um, we're losing ice on the planet. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you brought those, those two incidents up in Antarctica because I think that a very important characteristic someone needs to have is compartmentalization. And it, it speaks to not knowing the other quote unquote fires that were going on at the time. So for anyone who doesn't know, like how, I guess logistically, like how did those incidents happen? And like, mm -hmm. how did you push out all of the distractions and just focus on the immediate task at hand so that you guys would survive? Because that is like yeah. ultimate 
the ultimate goal is to survive. Yeah. I mean, in, in any situation, whether it's a, a threat of being trapped inside an iceberg or, or whether it's just um, fear of, you know, maybe you're putting an edgy, interesting, fresh proposal on your boss's desk and you're not sure how well it's going to be received. You know, fear, fear happens for you know, many reasons. It might be a sudden startling thing, or it could be something that grows over time. But what happens in fears is your respirations go up, your heart starts to race, and your brain just explodes into a million thoughts at once, chattering monkeys, as I've called them. And you got to stop that noise in your head. And for me, it's, it's always, um, been solved by just taking this really deep cleansing breath, like down, like deep into my hips, all the way up through my chest, all the way up into my neck. And as I'm taking that breath, I'm telling myself, emotions, you're not going to serve me well right now. And so I literally take the emotions out of my head, those chattering monkeys. And I say, "Uh, uh, uh, shut up for now. (laughs) And I take it out and I literally put it aside and say, I can't think about the big stuff right now. I can't think about the exit to the cave. I have to think about what's stopping me right now, right here, and deal with that smart little thing, that discreet step, and take pragmatic steps towards the ultimate success. So it's more important to focus on that little square foot that you stand in, focus on the here and now, solve that problem celebrate and then move on. And then after you've had your great success, you can bring those emotions back. You can have a little cry. You can have a big party, (laughs) whatever you need to do. Um, But we'll even give you better clarity on the situation. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. But in the moment, they don't serve a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. um, Yeah. You said like your one foot square. I call it like my Mm -hmm. four foot window. Like everything that's in this four foot window is all I should All you care can about. change, yeah, yeah. It's a very important thing to to be able to mm-hmm. compartmentalize it. Speaking of the big picture stuff, a lot of and you touched on this already, but a lot of the the climate implications and a lot of the mm-hmm. scientific goals that have come out of a lot of your expeditions um, are existing through today. Now, this book was written, I think, three years ago, three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. So, my question is, since then. What kind of what have you been up to? What is like what what scientific directions have you gone? Yeah. Have you took more of like the um, getting the info out there role, or do you still like to do dives and a little yeah, bit of just everything? Give us a step, so. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a little bit of everything, and that's because if you choose to lead your life as a cave explorer, then you you got to have your hands in a lot of different <laughs> things. <laughs> in order yeah. to put food on the table. So I do do, you know, I do a lot of cor- corporate keynote speaking and a lot of, you know, outreach to kids and things like that and still writing and filmmaking. In fact, um, just this past week, really, we released the trailer for Diving Into the Darkness, which is a film that's been made about my life. Um, really? Which is kind of exciting. Yeah. It's, wow, it's that's awesome. Soon to, uh, soon to be released. We'll, we'll have some distribution details pretty soon. If you just watch me on Facebook and things like that, we'll have announcements. But, but you can see the trailer right now at divingintothedarkness.com. So that's taken a lot of the last couple of years of my life um, working on the filming of that. 
Um, but I'm also working on some really cool science in the Ottawa River cave system uh, here in Canada, which is Canada's longest underwater cave system at about 10 and a half kilometers. And it's full of um, filter feeding organisms like mussels um, and okay. bivalve, like bivalve mussels and sponges and all kinds of other animals. It's a horrible little tiny, dark, low visibility, high flow, uh, not pretty cave, but I'm so excited about what I'm learning about all of these filter feeding organisms. And, and uh, so I've become a really quick study in malacology so that I can work with a, a partner from the Canadian Museum of Nature and, and uh, describe this network that is an unbelievable um, ecosystem resource providing like filtration of, of incredible volumes of, of water um, within the Ottawa River watershed. And then that, of course, leads to the St. Lawrence and the ocean. So, yeah, I'm really into that right now. <laughs> <laughs> A lot going on. Yeah. Um, well, that's very exciting. And um, I will try to promote the, the, new, the new film to Thanks. the best extent I can. Um, what kind of legacy do you hope to leave after your time mm -hmm. on Earth is past yeah well i keep saying this and then and you'll actually even hear this in the film is i want to be the woman i wish i'd met when i was 10 um as a 10 year old i did not have like the female role models doing the kinds of things that i'm doing today um certainly i had you know female role models in 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 other aspects of life but but to have this unconventional you know life of adventure and to make a career out of it i i didn't have those and so so today i i spend a lot of time with kids like in person and virtually to hopefully inspire them to you know break away from what they feel are barriers around them and and just you know do their best and live with integrity and and chase their dreams is there anything specifically you would tell that 10-year-old version of yourself different? Yeah, just know that nothing's impossible and yeah. uh, just focus on yourself and your own development. Mm. Awesome. I have one last question. Yep. And I ask this to everyone. How do you personally define adventure? Oh, well, that's interesting. My husband would say that just going to Walmart with me is often an expedition. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Because oftentimes things change path, and although we were meant to go to Walmart, we end up in the middle of the woods in a boggy marsh or something. <laughs> so, how do I define adventure? Um, I think anything you know outside—it's um, it's outside for me. Adventure is always outside and um, exploring the natural world. I would say that's great. Yeah, Jill Heinerth, thank you so much for coming on. This is a pleasure. You're an inspiration to everyone. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful that you took this time to talk to me today. So oh, thank you very thanks, much. John. It's been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Great. All right, guys. Thanks so much for watching. We'll catch you next time. Take care.